Welcome to Proven Improbable, where we focus on metals, mining, and more. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Joining us for a conversation is Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. For our listeners, we want to share that Sprott Inc. trades on the TSX symbol SII and on the OTC symbol SPOXF. Rick, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, Maurice. Thank you for having me. Rick, in our last conversation, we highlighted how imperative the people aspect is as a part of your security analysis thesis on selecting and identifying value propositions that the market cap does not recognize. I'd like to discuss that a little bit further today in highlighting an ETF recently that was market cap driven. Sure. The earlier discussion we had paraphrased Warren Buffett's old thing about the fact that there's lots of good basketball players in the world, but to win the title, you had to have a couple seven footers. And, you know, the fact is that we've been lucky over time at Sprott, you know, being able to align ourselves with the Bob Quartermains and the Robert Friedlands, uh, the Ross Beatties and the Lucas Lundins of the world. And ironically, uh, in bear markets in particular, you can buy the best of the best people in the business at no premium over anybody else. We talked also about how the business is regarded as being asset intensive. But really, it's people beneficiating an asset that makes you money. And the fact that the intangibles involved in a company aren't often reflected in the market cap were rather are often not reflected in the market cap is something that's helped us outperform uh, investors who are less picky than we are. Your question with regards to the ETF, I guess, goes to the fact that a market cap that's quantitative, that is, that only takes in statistics, particularly when those statistics only refer to market capitalization and liquidity, by definition, miss the best companies in a qualitative sense. If you have an earlier stage company that's very high caliber, that's run by one of these seven footers, uh, that company may not be well represented in the ETF relative to a larger but more poorly run company. Specifically, uh, I guess the issue really is the rebalancing of the GDXJ, the Van Eck Junior Gold Miners Index. Uh, it has become such an enormously successful, successful financial product that rather than having the sector ETF be driven up or down by the sector, the sector, in fact, has been driven up and down by the ETF. The analogy would be the tail wagging the dog. <laughs> and the consequence of the enormous success of that ETF and their own guidelines has meant that more and more money has pulled has poured into fewer and fewer names juniors allegedly but juniors with a median market cap of 3.8 to 4 billion dollars and the consequence of that is that the so-called small juniors the ones under 2 billion or a billion and a half market cap have suffered as they've been sold off by the ETF well, the select few juniors, things like Eldorado Gold with a four, 4.2 million billion market cap or New Gold have in fact done very well. And to belabor the point, I guess the opportunity that I see in front of us is look to the companies that have unusually high GDXJ ownership companies that will be driven higher on a momentum basis by flow of funds, 
But don't buy those, despite the fact that, that in the short term, there's going to be more buyers than sellers for them. But rather, look at companies who are out of favor, who are strategically important to them, and who will be taken over by those favored few at 35 or 40 or 45 percent premiums to market. Let's discuss how the ETFs was brought, how they are different and unique, because to me, I think there's a deep value proposition within the ETFs that Sprott has. Ours are so-called factors-based. Now, remember that an ETF must, by necessity, be rules-based uh, and, and not actively managed. But some ETFs uh, limit the number of factors that go into their selection to things like market capitalization and market liquidity. At Sprott, what we decided to look at was liquidity, of course, to be sure, but also beta to the gold price. We wanted companies that were responsive to increase in gold prices because we and our clients believe that gold is fundamentally undervalued. So we think that people buy gold stocks for leverage to gold. So we've looked historically at companies that exhibit high beta or leverage to moves in the gold price. We also look at companies that won't go broke, companies with low debt and with good cash flow to enterprise value. And finally, we look to companies that are growing their revenues. One of the risks that you, rate, that you run as a mining investor is to buy a company that isn't adding to reserves and resources. Because every day you mine, your business gets smaller. You can't pour water and fertilizer into gold mine and have it grow gold. You have to have a company that is either organically, that is by exploration, or in terms of capital markets efficiently, acquiring more ounces. And so we give special weight to companies that are growing rather than shrinking their revenues. Our ETF is a factors-based ETF, which means that we try and make qualitative as well as quantitative decisions. And speaking of deep value propositions here, uh, and also sticking with the Sprott theme here, of the 25th through the 20th of July at the Fairmont Hotel in Vancouver, British Columbia, we will have the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium. And Rick, these are a number of issuers that you have hand-selected and this is my third year attending. It is an amazing, an amazing conference for anyone to attend. Let's talk about, in my opinion, there's two categories of issuers there that I believe get neglected. I'd like to talk about the prospect generators. Why do you like them so much? Well, the prospect generators are simply put, arithmetically, the best way to uh, speculate in the exploration business. We said earlier on this interview, uh, in fact, that the business isn't as much an asset-intensive business as it is an intellectual property business. If you think about the exploration business as a research and development business, which is really what it is, you will understand the business more. And the prospect generators are people who recognize that intellectual capital in the business is more important than physical capital. They are generally amalgamations of scientists who have some specialized expertise that's recognized by the markets. They may be experienced Peru, uh, that is, regional specialists, or they may be specialists in porphyries or volcanogenic massive sulfides, geological terrains. Whatever their specialty is, 
they employ their intellectual capital to generate investment theses around um, mineral exploration properties that they suggest. But rather than exploit the thesis themselves, they farm out or joint venture the thesis to other mining companies who then do the heavy lifting of the exploration expenditure to earn an interest in the property. The consequence of that is that I don't dilute myself by issuing more shares at the intellectual capital level, the level that I want to be invested in. I dilute rather on in the property level. And I don't spend all of my time or all of my risk on one property, but rather I diversify, diversify my risk on a portfolio basis. That is an example with Eurasian minerals, probably includes 150 properties, those properties all being explored by other people. And Maurice, one other thing that I love, in this case, a lot of the due diligence burden falls on somebody else. When I look at most junior mining companies, the research on it might be done by a consultant who bills me to review the company, or it might be done by a brokerage firm that has a conflict of interest because they want to get my commission. The due diligence that I rely on with a prospect generator is done by the joint venture partner, somebody like Tech or BHP or Rio Tinto or Barrick, and they don't send me a bill. Uh, rather, they do due diligence with a view of spending a million or two million or ten million dollars to earn an interest in the property. And believe me, Maurice, there's no more honest appraisal than the appraisal that precedes spending five million dollars earning an interest in a property. So I love the fact that the due diligence burden becomes partially the burden of a deep-pocketed, highly sophisticated, world-class mining company. I think you and I were discussing this uh, prior to the interview. I think you've owned, what is it, 60 prospect generators over the years? Yeah. As I told you in the earlier discussion, Maury, sadly, I'm becoming old enough that I don't remember the exact number. But I think it's somewhere like 65 or 66 prospect generators in my life. I have participated in, I believe, uh, depends on how Cascabel works out. Uh, for Cornerstone, but I believe I've participated in 24 economic discoveries, and the consequence of that is that thus far, pending the Mariana takeover by Sandstorm, uh, I have been involved in 22 takeovers. Now, if you think about tw uh, 22 successful conclusions to 65 starts, and you juxtapose that with the fact that one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies becomes a mine. I'm told by people smarter than I that the success that I've enjoyed with prospect generations is about three standard deviations better than one would have experienced in the junior resource sector as a whole. That's truly astonishing. Three standard deviations about performance. It truly is. And for our listeners, uh, our sponsors of Proven Improbable will be there in attendance, which is EMX Royalties, Riverside Resources, Millrock Resources, and Fission 3.0. We encourage you to stop by the booth, speak with representatives there, and discover the deep value propositions that not just myself, but you're hearing it from the legend himself, Rick Rule, why he enjoys these companies and sees the merit in being a shareholder. Rick, let's change the discussion now to another group of issuers that get neglected, in my opinion, at the conference, and those are the uranium-based companies. 
Well, you may be early on the uranium, uh, Maurice. Now, of course, you'll have reasonable company. That's me. Uh, <laughs> the beginning of the discussion of uranium, I think you and I had maybe four interviews ago, which as the fact that uranium is being sold for less than production cost. Uh, that's normally a good sign, except for that you have to be patient. You have to be willing to accept a lot of pain. So let's do the math. First of all, uranium currently provides, I believe, the number 16% of baseload electrical generation in the United States. Uh, that means pretty simply, if we stopped having uranium, we'd stop having electricity, which I don't reckon is going to happen. So that's the first part of the equation. Second part of the equation is that a couple of experts, Cameco, the world's largest uranium producer, and the International Energy Agency, estimate that the total cost to produce a pound of uranium, I mean total cost now, not just cash cost, but total cost, is about $60 a pound. So the industry makes the stuff for $60, and they sell it for $23. They lose, uh, what's that, $37 a pound? And of course, being miners, try and make it up on volume. Now, what I'm trying to tell your listeners, Maurice, is that at some point in time in the future, six years from now, seven years from now, one of two things is going to happen. Either the price of uranium is going to go up to $60 or the light's going to go out. And I would suggest that if you asked your listeners whether it was more probable that the price of uranium went up or the lights went out, they would say it's more likely that the price of uranium is going to go up. And here's why. To operate uh, a new nuclear power plant, well, first of all, to build the thing is six or seven billion dollars. To fuel it, you got to have a hundred, uh, uh, pardon me, a million pounds of uranium a year. So to amortize a seven billion dollar investment, you only have to buy at sixty dollars a pound, sixty million dollars worth of uranium. The truth is that the uranium price is almost irrelevant to the total cost of producing energy. So the price has to go up because of selling for less than production cost. And it can go up because the price doesn't matter to the price of the finished product. My belief is this, Maurice, if something has to happen and it can happen, it will happen. The problem is it doesn't have to happen in a time frame that suits you or I or your listeners or, more cli or my clients. The price of uranium will go up when the, when the pace of Japanese nuclear reactor restarts increases. And I can't tell you when that's going to occur. Likely not in time for my conference. And we also encourage our listeners to please stop by and visit Fission Uranium. They will be also be in attendance at the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium. Now, the last company, which is Sprott Inc. Talk to us about Sprott Inc. because this to me is the preeminent name in the natural resource space. It gets overlooked. Well, I think we do get overlooked, and I think we get overlooked because the, quote, sexy story isn't understood. People buy junior resource stocks because they want leverage to a commodity, and they only think of leverage to commodity in the context of a mine. And it's certainly true that if you're making a little bit of money producing gold at $1,200 an ounce, and the price of gold goes to, let's say that, let's say as an example, at $1,200 an ounce, you're making $100 an ounce. And let's say that the price of gold goes to $2,000 an ounce. That likely means that your earnings, while the price of gold didn't double, your earnings go up tenfold. And so everybody looks at the leverage increased earnings you could have with a gold price. 
It's interesting, though, that people don't look at the leveraged increase in earnings that you can have in a precious metals-oriented, resource-oriented money manager uh, because we think the leverage is just as great. We believe, as you said, that Sprott, in terms of small-cap natural resource equities, is probably the preeminent investment brand worldwide. Nobody puts a premium on that brand because those markets have been in such a terrible bear market. The truth is that the index that we're measured against, the TSX fee, fell by 90% in real terms. So people don't hold us in high stead. But my experience and yours, too, is that a bear market like that is the author of a good bull market. And in that circumstance, uh, our assets under management and hence our revenues and hence our earnings could soar, could absolutely soar. And the truth is, at the beginning of the exercise, we are fundamentally a very cheap stock. Uh, our market capitalization is now less than $600 million. We have $345 million in cash, no debt. So in terms of downside risk, it's kind of hard to go broke when you have no debt and $345 million in cash. And all through the bear market, we generated free cash. In other words, we made money. Importantly, and people don't understand this, our mine is our brand. We manage in excess of $8 billion on behalf of a couple hundred thousand retail investors worldwide. And it's my belief, Maurice, as this, bear, as this bull market, pardon me, begins to take hold, those people will associate the positive experience they're having in the sector with Sprott. And they will increase their exposure to us and in, also increase the depth of their exposure. This is important because those are 200,000 customers that we don't have to go out and get. We already have them. We made the investment to obtain them in a bear market. And now they are ours and we are theirs. And if past is prologue, the upside in assets under management we could have is very dramatic. If you dial us back in an imaginary fashion to the year 2000, we had about $120 million in performance fee generating assets at the bottom of the last bear market. At the top of the last market, the top of the bull market in early 2011, we had $5.6 billion in performance fee generating assets. So the up move over the course of the sector, when we were less well known and smaller, was from $120 million to $5.6 billion. Will our assets under management grow 50-fold in this bull market? I don't think so. But if they tripled or quadrupled, the impact of that on our management fee income and hence on our profits could be absolutely dramatic. And I actually think this is an expectation, not a possibility. Importantly, unlike many opportunities that have pretty dramatic leveraged upside, we don't have an awful lot of downside because at the bottom of a bear market, we generated free cash and we have $345 million worth of cushion. And to make it easier for investors to wait to bridge the gap between inevitable and eminent, we pay a 5.6% cash dividend. When someone wants to invest in bonds, the first question I say is, have you heard of Sprott Inc.? This is a company that has zero debt, provides 5%, as you just referenced, uh, dividend. And most investors are not aware of the name. And it just uh, it, it startles me because they're willing to invest in 
a government that has debt obligations it cannot meet, <laughs> and they're willing to, to uh, put their future into that. But here you have Sprott Inc., 5% dividend, undervalued. You mentioned bridge. For someone who's not you, uh, sure. familiar with the story, I mean, talk to us about bridge and mezzanine financing, how that works into the philosophy of Sprott Inc. Well, one of the uh, principal investment products that we have, and one that we invest a lot of money in ourselves, is in effect bonds, meaning, but we're private lenders. We're not lending to governments. We're lending to companies. Uh, bridge lending means that we are providing temporary capital, which will be replaced by the issuer later on with lower cost permanent capital. Mezzanine level is like it would appear in, re in real estate. The mezzanine level is the one about above the ground floor where we might be subordinated to a senior lender. And increasingly, Sprott is in the project lending business where we are doing what would in real estate be called the construction finance. This is a business that we've been at for a very long time. And it's a business where we have a big advantage over our competitors. Because we're so active in the equity side of the business, our origination cost for lending is zero. We've already established a relationship with the lenders earlier in their history as a public company. So that's an important durable competitive advantage. And in fact, it's the income that we have made on our lending activities that have allowed us to pay a dividend all the way through the bear market in the mining stocks. If you think about our lending activity, Maurice, going back over the last bear market, at the same time that the junior resource equities, as measured by the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Board, fell by 90% over five years, we made 19% per annum, cumulative and compounded, in our lending business. In other words, they lost 90%, we made 19% per annum in that business. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful business. Earlier in your statement, you um, alluded to us as being a bond-like investment. Uh, that isn't actually true uh, in the sense that although we're both income-oriented, of course, a bond is a call on cash that may or may not be there depending on the entity's willingness to pay. The advantage that we have over a bond is that unlike a bond, we can go up. If somebody borrows $1,000 from you, they pay you the interest plus the $1,000 back. In our case, we pay you the dividend, and there's a chance, in fact, I think a probability, that the share price goes up. The truth is there is a couple of structural advantages, too, to a government bond over us. The first, of all, the first is that the government's asset is you. Uh, you think you're a citizen, but you're not. You're chattel. And they have the ability to come with a gun and make Maurice pay. And even if you borrow money from Marie, from me, Maurice, sadly, I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> the other thing a government can do that we can't do is print. Uh, U.S. 10-year treasury is backed by the full faith and credit of you and me. And if that isn't enough, they can just whip up a couple digits in the computer and make it so. Now, you believe and I believe that the net present value of that payment stream in the future will be um, de facto compensated because they'll find a way to print or inflate away the premium. The advantage that Sprott has is that same set of circumstances that causes your bond to become worth less money probably causes Sprott to be worth more money because we're in the hard asset business.
But I would caution people that sometimes the reason you buy a bond and the reason why you ought to buy stock, a Sprott are different. We say to people, our value, our value proposition is you want yield, you want growth, why not both? Sprott is yield and growth. <laughs> Very well said. Switching gears, let's discuss Sprott Global Resource Investments and the virtues of, of being a customer or having a brokerage account with a full service broker that is germane to the natural resource base? Well, the last part of your statement is the, is the critical part. Uh, there are several fine brokerage firms, both in the United States and worldwide. Um, my definition of a fine brokerage firm is a brokerage firm that serves its customer's interest. I believe that we are the finest firm in the world with regards to natural resources. That's all we do. If you want to buy supermarket stocks, if you want to buy bank stocks, if you want to buy municipal bonds, God bless, but you should not do it with us. By contrast, if you're interested in mining, oil and gas, farming, forestry, water, stuff like that, it's what we do. Uh, it's the only thing that we've done for 30 years. We have a team of professionals around the world and all we do day in day out is natural resources importantly our largest clients are our employees myself included so while we're telling you what we think you ought to do with your money we are doing that very same thing with our money we manage on behalf of 200,000 investors worldwide in excess of eight billion dollars in natural resources so the research that you see from Sprott isn't research that's primarily generated to get a commission out of you. It's research that is oriented towards providing a return on capital for Sprott Inc. for its own account, for its employees who are its largest customers, and for money that it manages on a performance basis. That's very different from the agency commissions that you would see at other full-service brokers. And as to the discount brokers, you will need to decide whether or not information is worth something. If information isn't worth anything to you, then by all means go to Schwab. But what you ought to do is you ought to compare and contrast ourselves with Schwab. I would offer any of your listeners any of your readers, any of your subscribers, the opportunity to send me their natural resource portfolio. Send it to me in an email with the name of the company and the symbol, and I will send you back an absolutely no obligation review of those companies backed up by all the professionals at Sprott. Send that same list to Schwab and to E-Trade and to Interactive Brokers and see if you even get a responding email or see and compare their analysis of your stocks, hint, it'll be non-existent, with mine. And if you think that your portfolio would benefit from information, and if you care about the natural resource business, then you need to think about Sprott. If you believe that your account is meaningless enough that you can put it on autopilot, in other words, that information doesn't matter, by all means, stay with your discount broker. And for our listeners, Rick, first of all, thank you so much for that opportunity. For those listeners that are going to take advantage of this opportunity, please, to help streamline the emails, put in the subject line, proven and probable, no attachments. Please make sure you just put the 
uh, subject line proven improbable and in the body of the email include your natural resource portfolio and Rick before we close here someone listening they have a in, an account with one of your competitors they can purchase the OTC let's discuss the merits of an account with Sprott and why that would not be an issue and why or, or why they should even consider the OTC aspect versus actually going on the exchange of the stock that they're trying to purchase well that's that's very important it's a very good question you know most natural resource stocks worldwide aren't American domiciled most of them are domiciled in Great Britain or South Africa or Canada or Australia many of those stocks trade in the US over-the-counter market in the pink sheets but in that case you aren't buying the stock on its home exchange a market maker is buying it on the home exchange and marking it up and selling to you. So the first thing is that you have the dealer markup. The second thing you have is a foreign exchange fee, which may be as much as 200 basis points. <laughs> uh, it is important if you're going to be in this business to be able to compare both the U.S. dollar price in the U.S. over-the-counter market and the US dollar net price on the stocks home exchange be it South Africa Australia New Zealand Canada or Great Britain if your broker can't do that your broker is doing you a disservice many people have quoted to me the commission that they paid on a stock that they bought in the US over-the-counter market and forgot about the fact that they were paying two and a half or three percent in markups and foreign exchange fees. In other words, their total cost was substantially higher. They were paying as much as $1,000 more for a stock that they were saving $35 in commission on, a false savings to be sure. <laughs> well, and just to add to that, what a lot of investors are not aware of is that when you purchase the OTC, there's very little volume and there's no correlation in the movement with the actual stock save the company that you're looking at is on the TSX. Would you expand on that a little bit further as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, remember, it's a, a dealer or a market maker's market. Uh, you aren't buying the stock from another investor on an exchange. You're buying stock for a facilitator. You know, many of the discount firms in the United States uh, will refer your order to a market maker, uh, generally Knight Securities, and they'll get paid a fee. If you get paid a fee for routing an order, it's pretty obvious that the person paying the fee is not United Way or the Red Cross. They're doing it so they can trade against your order and mark it up and make, <laughs> and make money on the spread. It's very important that you examine the total cost in the transaction. And last but not least, please visit our website, www.provenandprobable.com, where we interview the most respected names in the natural resource space. The website, again, is www.provenandprobable.com. You may reach us at contact at provenandprobable.com. Rick Rule of Sprott Global Resource Investments. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Remember to like and subscribe for more conversations with the most respected names in the natural resource space. Check out our website at www.provenandprobable.com. The information presented on Proven and Probable 
is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.